I think there's a misperception that the USPSTF said that clinical pelvic exams were not recommended. And that's actually not what the, the guidelines say. The guidelines say that there's insufficient evidence to recommend. That doesn't mean that they're not recommended. It's just that there's not enough evidence to say that it's something that we should be doing on every single patient every single year. Hi, thank you for joining us. My name is Dr. Liz Etkin Kramer. I'm a generalist gynecologist from South Florida, and we're here to discuss challenging cervical cancer cases and prevention. I'd like to thank the OBG Project for hosting this very important podcast about challenging cervical cancer prevention cases. It is Cervical Health Awareness Month, which as Sue Gross, the founder of OBG Project would say, it should be every month. Uh, I'd like to introduce you to Emma Grabinski. Emma is an OBGYN from Seattle, who's going to talk with us today. Emma, tell me a little bit about yourself. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. My name is Emma Grabinski. I'm a board certified OBGYN. I'm a generalist um, OBGYN. I currently practice in Seattle, Washington. I have an interest in cervical cancer prevention and really enjoy counseling patients and, you know, kind of working with my uh, primary care colleagues to hopefully identify patients who are at higher risk of getting cervical dysplasia and, and cancer and hopefully preventing that from happening. Um, about 50% of my patient population is uninsured, underinsured, and so doesn't usually fit into the current, you know, screening or management guidelines because oftentimes they'll have, you know, be rarely screened or underscreened. Do you find it that it's hard to get results in patients that you see? So somebody comes to see you for a routine exam, birth control, whatever it may be, and you're trying to make sure they're up to date on their cervical cancer screening. Do you have any mechanism by which you can try to get the results? We use um, EPIC as our EMR. So if patients have been um, to places, you know, that use EPIC, we're able to, to localize it through that. But I find that you know, oftentimes patients don't remember the names of the clinics they've been to, mm-hmm. or, you know, especially, you know, if they've been moving around, you know, going to different places for college, they don't necessarily, you know, remember when their last, um, you know, pap smear was. And so, yeah, we we very often don't have, you know, adequate um, historical records for our patients. Yeah. Yeah. I find I'm in South Florida and I find I have a very transient population here for new patients. I mean, my old patients are my old patients, but for new patients, I have to search around to try to get things. And the cervical cancer guidelines, ASCCP guidelines, as wonderful as they are, how to prevent cervical cancer, rely upon the context, yep. you know, the five-year chance of a high-grade dysplasia. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the old results, you can't put it in context according to them. So it, you're, I find myself sometimes struggling. And when I'm not struggling, and tell me if you have this experience too, I get if I'm able to get the results, which is not very common, and I go through the results, it now takes me another 20 to 30 minutes on a chart, non-billable, of course, to go through and say, okay, this is what she had, when she had it, what she was treated for. So I find it a little bit problematic. What are your thoughts? 
No, I agree. I mean, we serve a large um, patient population um, where we, we serve the Whammy region. And um, so we have a lot of patients coming from Alaska. Um, for example, we have um, a lot of indigenous patient populations. You know, we have migrant farm workers and oftentimes, um, you know, we, we don't have good records from them. And then the other problem that we have is that even if we have records, you know, sometimes they're out of date records. And so their treatment was based on old guidelines or their right. follow up was based on old guidelines, which is not relevant with the newer guidelines. And so, right. you know, when you put it in the app or you're trying to follow the newer guidelines, it says use clinical judgment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get that, too. Or I, they sometimes I have to go back and start again and look at a different page because I didn't push the right button. Yes, which you know, <laughs> it's just a little bit a little bit wonky sometimes, so yeah. to speak. Are you finding that your patients who come in? So most of your patients are through the hospital, or they're private, or it's a combo of both. It's a combo of both. We um, we get a, a lot of referrals from our community clinics, right? Specifically for abnormal Pap smears that they you know want help with follow ups on, and then we get a lot of people that obviously come to our clinic um, after presenting you know to the emergency room for some reason. Mm-hmm. We also just get a lot of patients who are self referring. Um, we work with some local charities to take care of uh, you know patients who are like I said, uninsured. And so, you know, we, we get a whole variety of patients. Mm -hmm. Do you find that if you tell them, so, so I know guidelines say negative PAP, negative HPV over age 30 every five years. It's interesting because most OBGYNs that I speak to do it more frequently than that. Um, But do you find that if you say that to them, your, your patients, they will come in in four to five years, or do you find that they will still come in for their quote unquote annual exam? Um, I don't usually recommend um, five years follow-up um, to be I'm truthful. To um, I think that the the very rare cases that I recommend the five-year follow-ups for are the patients who've you know, been with us for, you know, maybe 15, 20 years, we have good records on them, we know they're in, you know, long term monogamous relationships, they may be, you know, kind of towards the end of their end of their screening based on ASCCP. Um, Although that's another thing that I don't necessarily adhere to is stopping screening at 65. Me too. And, you know, and, and so they don't actually meet the guidelines for going every five years. Um, You know, we don't have good records. We don't have documentation that they've been routinely screened. Um, We don't have good documentation that they've never had high grade dysplasia. Right. Um, And so in those patient populations, I'm not comfortable, you know, going to the return in five years because they've already demonstrated, unfortunately, that they're, they're not meeting those criteria. Right. Very good point. And if they do, if they, if we know them and we've followed them long enough that we know their history, it, it's a different story. But the majority of the patients, certainly that I'm seeing, I, I like you, I'm doing it more or less every three. So when they come in every four, now, are you seeing that they're spacing out their annual exams? Yeah, some people are. Um, and I think that's, you know, again, um, a little bit of our patient population, you right. know, some some of our patients, you know, specifically when they're, you know, kind of younger in their 20s or 30s, really the only time that we're capturing them is, um, you know, they don't come in for preventive health visits. Even when we recommend right. they do, you know, we're capturing them, 
you know, because they want contraception or we're capturing them mm-hmm. because they're pregnant again, mm-hmm. um, rather than coming in for preventive wellness visits. Right, right. So the idea of an annual exam, sometimes we lose the annualness of it, if you will, because patients don't, I've had patients that say to me, well, you told me to come back in three years. And I said, no, I said, come back in a year, but we do your cervical cancer screen, specifically that little portion of the annual exam uh, at a different, um, in a different time frame, but certainly not every five years. I agree completely that, that, that's, that's, that's not real life. And we're, we're, and I have yet to meet anyone that any ob- other OBGYN that, that does it every five years, unless you're in a completely academic um, center where you're kind of a, a little bit of an, uh, a different approach. But I agree with you. you. You lose a little bit of that. How is your uh, vaccination rate? Um, our vaccination rate is not great. I mean, we try yeah. and vaccinate people um, whenever we can. Right. Um, we offer it at preventive health visits. We offer it when we're, you know, seeing patients for, you know, follow up of abnormal, you know, um, screening results um, or when we're treating abnormal screening results. Um, but I think, I mean, overall in the the country, I believe our, even our adolescent vaccination rate is only about 50 to 60 percent. Right. And so, you know, kind of our older patient population who may not have been, you know, adolescents at the time when, you know, the the vaccine came out, you know, a much, much lower vaccination rates. I think the other thing is, um, you know, given the, you know, shortage of OBGYNs in this country as well, you know, oftentimes we're actually not able to do annual preventive health visits, right? Mm -hmm. We are really stretched with the amount of patients that we're being asked to see. Our referral queue is very long for problem-based visits for people that, um, you know, may have abnormal bleeding or may have abnormal cervical cancer screening. And so I think that that's another issue about, you know, getting patients to come back for a preventive wellness visit is just that with the shortage of, of clinicians, we're actually not able to even accommodate those patients. That, that's a good point. That's a very good point. And we, we see that also throughout the country yep. in, in certain areas and, and these maternity deserts alone, you know, it's where there's no maternity care for, for hundreds of miles away. It's interesting. Your age group of your patients are mostly what? We have a very wide range. So we see, you know, adolescents through to, you know, I have some patients like in their 80s. Um, right. So, you know, we're we're kind of the quaternary referral center gotcha. um, in our area. Um, I mean, we have University of Washington nearby, but, you know, Swedish is the largest deliverer of maternity care. So we see a uh-huh. lot of these patients, you know, within our system, coming back within our system and, and then staying with us as they kind of age out of their reproductive lifespan. Right. It's funny because when I first started practice 30 years ago, I felt like I was a similar age to by far the majority of the patients, if not all of the patients, but you know, the the bulk of them. And the older I got, my patients aged with me. As 20% of the cervical cancer cases are now in women over 65, what are your thoughts about screening after 65? I think those recommendations have been based on modeling data, and it's based on a lot of information about um, vaccine rates that are not really applicable in that patient population. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, given another 30 years or so, we, you know, hopefully if we can get our vaccine rates up, 
that may be something that we're able to consider doing. But at this moment in time, I really just don't think we're there yet. And so I think that that's, you know, unfortunately, where some of the art of medicine um, is being forgotten is that, you know, the yes, population statistics and population health is really very, very important and adherence to evidence based guidelines. But you also have to look at the patient in front of you. And if the patient doesn't fit into that guidelines, that you have to really um, make an individualized decision. And so that's definitely something that I'm, you know, having discussions with uh, my patient populations as they're aging. Um, And I agree with you, you know, I've, I've been in my current position now for more than 10 years. And, and so I definitely have a different age group of patients than what I had when I started. And, and really it's based on, you know, for me, screening patients who are older than 65 is based on their individual preferences. It's based Mm -hmm. on their, you know, anticipated life expectancy based on other comorbidities, based on their personal history. And again, based on, you know, kind of what they feel their risk level is. Mm -hmm. It's been a while now since uh, the extended age guidelines for HPV vaccination has been out up through age 45. What do you do with your patients that, I again, I'm in Florida, which is a very interesting place to live. I have patients who are over the 45 who are now entering the dating world. And you don't want to call it a, a divorce vaccine, but what do you do for those patients? Do you do you offer them vaccination? Do you, how do you, I mean, it's not FDA approved for that, but it doesn't mean it doesn't do good work for that. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I do offer um, vaccines. Um, again, I offer vaccines for, you know, pretty much anybody that wants them. Um, right. I think that, again, a large proportion of people who are being screened are not having genotyping. And so even if they have, you know, high risk HPV positive, we don't know their genotypes. Um, if we do know their genotypes and it's non-16, 18, then the vaccine is obviously, you know, going to be beneficial for them. If we mm-hmm. don't know it, then, you know, still, I think that there's a possibility that the vaccine is going to be beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, especially with the changing guidelines, I don't know that these patients are potentially going to be underscreened, you know, in 20, 25 years when they hit 65 Right. Um, and if I can give them a boost and 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 try and give them some protection, you know, then I, I think that it's definitely worth it. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. Absolutely. Yeah. Just as an expensive vaccine, but you do, you know, you can only do what you can do. Yeah. And again, and that's a conversation, you know, to have with patients and the risks, the benefits. And one of the, you know, the downsides is definitely the cost of the vaccine and insurance not covering it. I tell my patients the risk is pretty low. It's not cheap and it's a sore arm. <laughs> that's, about, <laughs> that's about it. The yes. only thing good I could say is nowadays we're not getting these stories over the, I don't know if you remember when, when it first came out, when uh, Gardasil and uh, Cervarix came out, you would had all these social media videos of people walking backwards because they had all these not real, but uh, um, created uh, effects from the vaccine. Oh, look, it's neurologic. I'm walking backwards. And it was never, it was never anything real. I mean, the only thing I've ever had is somebody have a sore arm and an, occasion, an occasional vasovagal. Yes. But, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. That's interesting though, that, that you two are giving it and also probably giving it at the same time that you have a high grade dysplasia to decrease your risk of recurrence yep, when you're absolutely. treating it. It's such yep. an important thing. Yeah. And it, you know, as important as the vaccine is, 
it highlights another important thing that although the majority of cervical cancer is related to high-risk HPV, there are what, 11%, according to a recent article that, that I, I saw, that are not HPV related, or at least it doesn't, there isn't enough HPV in the specimen to say that the, it's, the specimen is HPV positive. Mm-hmm. So that gets me a little bit nervous to get rid of testing as co-testing, which we've done for so, successfully, I might add, for so many years for primary HPV screening, which again, it's based on modeling studies. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I again, I mean, the, the studies uh, have been done on really populations that have had really good registries. Um, a lot of the data has come from Australia or Europe where they're centralized repositories. There's very high rates of vaccination. I think in Australia, more than 98% of the right. eligible patient population is, is vaccinated against high-risk HPV. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that's, I remember, you know, when we were in medical school and we we're being taught how to read studies and understand if those studies right. were relevant to your patient population, um, and I mean, that just isn't relevant to my patient population. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the downsides of, you know, co-testing that has frequently been promoted in these studies of, of one of the reasons of, of moving to primary HPV screening is that PAP tests um, have a certain percentage of, of false positives and, you know, having a higher rate of colposcopies when actually studies have shown that in the initial phases of primary HPV screening, you actually do more colposcopies because a lot of patients are high-risk HPV positive. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I also, you know, worry about the fact that although, you know, high-risk HPV, it has a Uh, higher sensitivity than, um, you know, doing cytology alone. Um, It's not as specific. And so I think that, again, um, you know, when you're looking at the whole picture, you know, if you have a patient who has an abnormal pap and, you know, maybe an H-cell pap and and has positive high-risk HPV, then, you know, you're much more worried and much more likely to get them in for a colposcopy. Whereas, you know, in, in some of these patients, specifically the patients who, you know, a persistent high-risk HPV positive with normal PAPs, right. um, you know, you might be a, a little bit less kind of worried that they they have an underlying, you know, high-grade dysplasia. And we can, you know, counsel those patients maybe a little bit differently, specifically if they're, you know, thinking about pregnancy in the near future. That, that brings up a great question. So I know that the name of the podcast is Challenging Cases in Cervical Cancer Prevention, since I threw in the prevention there. What do you do for that patient? So I have some patients, a handful, that look at me every year, and every year they're shedding high-risk HPV, high-risk HPV. What do you do for them? What do you, I mean, you can go by ASCCP, but what, how do you manage those patients? I think it really depends on the history again, right? So I have definitely some patients who have been seeing me or have a history that I have records of and have had multiple colposcopies um, with biopsies that don't show right. high-grade dysplasia. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, first of all, we have to make sure that we're doing, you know, proper colposcopies. I see a lot of these patients who still are having you know, colposcopically directed biopsies only, maybe one biopsy and no ECCs. You're still doing ECCs on everyone? I'm not necessarily doing ECCs on everyone, but I've definitely started doing many, many more ECCs. Yeah. 
Um, especially if I don't see anything on, um, you know, on the ectocervix. And I, I definitely have found some atypical glandular cells or, mm-hmm. or AIS on patients with, you know, persistent positive high risk HPV right. who've, who've had like, you know, normal colposcopies in the past, but nobody's ever actually done an ECC on them. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that in that situation, you know, I definitely counsel those patients a little bit differently. You know, but if, if it's somebody that I think has had, you know, good, you know, diagnostic testing, then, you know, after like a few of these positive high risk HPV negative PAPs, I'll have a conversation with them. I'll talk to them about, you know, AC, a, um, ASCCP recommends ongoing, you know, surveillance at one year intervals. Um, I offer them continued surveillance with an extended interval or I offer them, you know, treatment and that might be a leap. And in some situations, it you know, might be a hysterectomy, especially if there's other, you know, comorbidities that would lead them to consider having a hysterectomy, such mm-hmm. as, you know, abnormal bleeding that we're treating or fibroids. Mm-hmm. And and in those patients that are persistently positive with normal PAPs, have you have you tried any supplements? Not to, we're not going to brand, to say any, I'm just always curious about that because I have patients that do talk about supplements. Um, I don't know if you've heard of any. Yeah, I have. I I think that, and I think there is actually some data on, um, you know, some of the, um, I can't remember the name of it now, like the mushroom supplements. Yeah, the the Papalex. Not to give brand names, not to give brand names. Sorry, (laughs) yeah. That was on me. (laughs) Yeah, and, and, you know, so yes, um, we we do discuss that as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so frustrating. I feel bad for these girls because they know and it, the colpos are not fun. They're no. just not fun. So as much as I can do to help them stop shedding, it's it's yep. not not a bad thing. So what do you do for a let's say a 28 year old with a high grade a CIN two that kind of has been hanging out for a while? You know, you've been following them closely every six months, let's say, and you're getting see it and it's been a year or two years. What do you do with those gals? Yeah, there was a recent article that looked at um, CIN2 specifically and showed that, you know, that there's about a 60 to 70% regression um, and about a 30% progression rate. And I believe that the more than 90% of the time that'll happen within the first 12 months, 12 to 24 months. Um, and so, you know, I think that if we've been, if they've been followed, you know, for a couple of years and they're not regressing, then at that point we'll, you know, have a discussion about that and have a discussion about, you know, possible excisional procedure to remove that with, of Mm -hmm. course, catch up, you know, HPV vaccination if they haven't had that in the past. Right. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's when you're sitting there and nothing, it's not moving and it's sitting at C, you know, CIN2 and you're. It's hard to follow. And then I've had a couple that end up by the second or third colposcopy, which, as we know, is not fun. I've seen the pathologist write CIN two to three. So yeah. I know we're definitely going in the wrong direction when, yeah. when I start to see that for sure. Uh, it, it's pretty interesting. Have you had any issues with cervical incompetence after treatment? I, I, I have not. No, and I think that um, I think that some of that was based on old data that lumped mm-hmm. um, cold knife cones in with leaps, um, mm-hmm. and so I think that some of the newer data that looked at leaps alone um, mm-hmm. didn't really show you know much cases of cervical insufficiency, mm-hmm. and you know really you know especially if it's extra cervical. I mean, I'm not taking you know really deep on the the cervix, and I think that mm-hmm. there's 
again, been some studies that have shown that you can induce um, HPV clearance. So some studies have, have shown, you know, up to a 75% rate of HPV clearance after, you know, LEAP procedure. And so I think that that's not unreasonable to offer somebody who has this, Mm -hmm. you know, really long history of HPV positivity, Mm -hmm. you know, who is kind of, you know, getting fed up. And I think that one of the other things, although I know that that's really not evidence-based and there's worries about harm, I think that the other thing to consider, you know, when, when talking to some of these patients is you know they do get fed up, like you said, and yeah. I think that that does increase the risk of them not showing up, right? Um, they you know of non-attendance because they're just you know fed up of and and they've been told oh, you know you had a colposcopy after your abnormal pap everything was fine there's no high grade dysplasia and so they're like well why do I need to keep coming back then maybe I won't right um, and then unfortunately maybe they do come back with you know at a much much later date. Yeah with postcoital bleeding now. Exactly. <laughs> something something going on. It's interesting too because for example, I can see and and this with the change of guidelines through ASCCP is pretty pertinent. But I back probably 10 or 12 years ago if if uh mild transient which we know is transient um CIN1 hangs out long enough, we would have the conversation about treating, especially in older patients who are done childbearing. And I still do that. I still do that in these patients because they get very frustrated coming back over and over again. So if I can get it cleared, like you were saying, I I feel like I'm doing a better job. Would you, in an older patient, non-childbearing patient, treat a CIN1? Yeah. And I think that that goes along with, um, you know, kind of the HPV positivity, um, right. it's the same thought process, right? Is that first of all, you know, are we absolutely sure that we've done, you know, adequate diagnostic testing to make sure right. that there's nothing more than CIN1 going on? You know, is there something else that's hiding up in the canal um, or something, you know, more subtle that we've missed? Um, and also, again, this thought process that, you know, if patients need to keep coming back, you know, like you said, every six to 12 months and, and right. then keep being reassured that, oh, it's nothing. You just need to come back right. and, and have to keep going through this procedure that they're more likely to, you know, then not attend their follow-up visits. So Emma, I'd like to talk about another thing that we see in our practice. What do you do when you have your patient that comes in and wants a yearly pap or just a pap smear because that's what they're used to and no co-testing. What do you do with those patients? Yeah, I mean, I have a discussion and I think that that's a perfect time to educate people about, you know, what HPV is and the fact that, you know, the vast majority of, of dysplasia is caused by HPV and the reasons why we're moving, you know, we have moved away from, you know, kind of annual um, co-testing but again, I think it's individualized. And I think if there's, you know, I, I often will find a lot of, you know, family history of maybe cancers. And that's a great way of, you know, getting them into, see a genetic counselor, right. um, you know, will, you know, find out a lot about, you know, potentially their other risk factors. And, you know, it's, it's, I think, joint decision making. I have the same conversation about breast cancer screening, right? right. I mean, there's, you know, multiple different recommendations. Do you start at 40? Do you start at 45? Do you start at 50? Do you go every year, every two years? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that you, you know, the, the right thing to do is to take a, you know, thorough history and um, look at your individual patient's risk, counsel mm-hmm. them on the different options, um, mm-hmm. and then have joint decision making. And let's talk for a second about guidelines. And we've you've you've said some really good, important 
things about guidelines are guidelines, and that's a perfect situation, but we see patients um, in front of us, and you have to take that into account, and that's, that's the real world, and the real world may be different than guidelines. You have to apply it but but it's it's a little bit different than guidelines. I have a bit of a concern, and I'm curious your thoughts about this. So you have guidelines, and we're, guidelines are changing, and you know, data changes, and and we're guided by the literature. But the, it feels to me that there are so many changes in guidelines, one after another after another, that a it's hard for OBGYNs to follow. I mean, I find it difficult and I don't even do OB anymore. I get to sleep through the night. So you poor guys that are still doing OB and B, I find that patients get a little bit uncomfortable and they distrustful of the medical community because I'm telling them something that they didn't hear before, or at least I don't think that they heard before. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I agree. You know, our primary care colleagues who are, you know, often on the front lines, are also, you know, very confused about the guidelines and the changing guidelines and, you know, obviously have so many other, you know, primary care screenings to keep up to date on. Right. Um, And I think that there can be a lot of, you know, misinformation or, you know, kind of confusing information that's, you know, even amongst, you know, gynecologists, not everybody is aware of, you know, kind of all of the, the changing guidelines, let alone our primary care colleagues, you know, just because like you said, things change and they have been changing so rapidly. Right. And, um, I think that again, you know, when you have, you know, 20 minutes for a lot of, you know, people to do like a full preventive health screening, right. You know, you really don't have the time to, um, you know, to sit and take a, uh, you know, a full history and do this shared decision making. And so, you know, I do still think that there are patients that are, you know, being inadequately screened, you know, based on their individual risk factors. And then, you know, they may see another healthcare professional who, you know, then tells them, well, you should have had this done. And I do think that the, you know, the changing guidelines and the differing guidelines it's confusing to the patients, it's confusing to medical professionals, right. and it probably does contribute to, you know, people being mistrustful and, and then, you know, not wanting to or not trusting the recommendations that we're making for them. Right. Which totally undermines your, your visit. Yep. And there is there are so many things at the yearly visit. I mean, patients think that when they're coming to us for my paps, for, I'm here for my pap smear. And, we, you know, educating them, we're not doing that this year. I could do an exam. I couldn't do an exam. I still do pelvic exams. I know that ACOG came out with a statement saying that. And, and I'm, mind you, I'm an officer in, in District 12. But I, I still, I've, I'm very tactile. OBGYN is a very tactile, visual. You feel, you feel thyroids. You feel, you do a breast exam. It's part and parcel of everything. Uh, yeah, I, I just one. That's one of the things that I want to point out, and that's definitely one of the things that I tell my, you know, my residents, and when I'm I'm talking about clinical uh, pelvic exams, is that I think there's a misperception mm-hmm. that the USPSTF said that clinical pelvic exams were not recommended, and that's actually not what the the guidelines say. The guidelines say that there's insufficient evidence to recommend. That doesn't mean that they're not recommended. It's just that there's not enough evidence 
to say that it's something that we should be doing on every single patient every single year. Um, and so, so not, I think not recommended and not, not recommended. Yeah. Exactly. It's, <laughs> sometimes I, I worry that, that patients get the, and physicians get the incorrect information in terms of that. I, I think, I think it's important. And, and there's so many things that we do at an annual exam, like you were saying, hereditary cancer, conversations. You know, if I can tell you how many times a week I'm doing screening for hereditary cancer. Now, true, not, thank God, the majority of the patients, although they may meet criteria, are not positive for genetic uh, pathogenic variant. But but by the same token, it's an important conversation or, or should I be ordering an MRI and things like that? And that's the conversation at the annual exam. Yeah. I think the other thing for the preventive health visit as well um, that, you know, we forget is that, yeah, like a pap test is um, or a co-testing is, you know, for cervical cancer prevention. But one of the things that we have seen is increasing rates of vulva cancer Mm -hmm. and increasing rates of vaginal cancer. I do think that we really need to you know, have a trauma-informed lens on mm-hmm. on exams and when we're talking with patients um, and building those relationships. But a lot of the time we're doing, you know, self-swabs for STIs, self-swabs mm-hmm. for vaginitis. We're doing, you know, uh, self-collected HPVs, I've heard of some of my colleagues doing. And so, you know, nobody is actually looking at, you know, somebody's vulva or mm-hmm. examining, you know, somebody's vagina. And again, it goes along with building those relationships and, and education and, you know, even just doing an exam and, and telling somebody, oh, you have a, you know, a tilted or a retroverted uterus, right? right? You know what that is. You know, it's, it's normal variant. Do you have, you know, pain during sex? And, um, you know, oh, yes, I do. And this is the reason why. And, and you know, and then being able to you know, just have that education for patients so that they become much more aware of their own bodies. And mm-hmm. so they are more aware of, you know, when something's abnormal and brings it to our attention rather mm-hmm. than, you know, somebody might not be getting an exam for five years down the road. And now, you know, we've we've identified, you know, advanced lichen sclerosis. Right, right. And they can't urinate because they now have adhesions over the urethra mm-hmm. because of lichen sclerosis. Yeah, I, I see that not infrequently, which is sad, which is sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really good point that, that it's not just PAP HPV, it's annual exams. It's, it's routine. And I tell patients frequently, okay, this, I want to know what your normal is. So I can mm-hmm. tell you what your normal is not when, if I mm-hmm. see you for another time. So I, I agree with you. Emma, are there other interesting cases regarding the subject of cervical cancer screening prevention and interesting cases you'd like to talk about? One of the things that I would like to talk about is, you know, screening in immunocompromised patients. That's a great subject. So you have somebody, not only HIV, but because HIV, you you know, automatically know they're they're they've got their immunocompromised. And I've seen, oh my God, I've seen an a newly I had a um a forty some odd year old woman who worked in oncology. She came in for her her routine exam, and I was doing a Pap HPV then, and I saw a really large vulvar lesion, and it was a VIN, vulva intraepithelial neoplasia. For those who don't. If, if those don't understand me speaking, and 
what was interesting is that she subsequently got tested. She was HIV positive. And once she was appropriately managed, it totally, totally regret. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a VIN one or two. It was like a, it was like a really prominent, I see her three months later and it's gone, which I thought was cool. But let's tell me about your experience with immunocompromised. And even those that are on uh, methotrexate or, or one of the biologics for rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, I, I think that that's something, I think that this is a patient population that is really frequently missed as the immunocompromised. I think it's, you know, kind of been drilled into us that patients, um, you know, with HIV need enhanced screening. Um, but I, I find that, you know, biologics are being used more and more for, you know, many different conditions. You know, mm-hmm. my, you know, some of my patients, you know, with psoriasis or, you know, especially IBD, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, mm-hmm. um, like you said, rheumatoid arthritis, I find that actually my GI colleagues, you know, are pretty good about telling their patients with, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disease that they need enhanced screening. But these other patients uh, don't necessarily know that they need enhanced screening and that this is something that's, you know, frequently missed. And, you know, these are patients that really don't fall into, you know, the routine screening. These really do need enhanced screening. And, you know, these are patients that I do worry about because, like I said, I think that, you know, treatment with, you know, biologics and um, and immunosuppressants are becoming much, much more commonplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't recognize that. And we're, we're doing them a disservice by, you know, really not making sure that they're well screened. Mm-hmm. It's a really good point. The guidelines say that, you know, patients with lupus, um, even if they're not on treatment, you know, although we don't have good data on how often they need to be screened, the recommendations are for patients who have lupus, regardless of their treatment, that they fall into the immunocompromised category um, and qualify for enhanced screening. Right, right. And then the question is, what does that mean, enhanced screening? So if the AACCP says every three years, I'm doing, that's basically what I'm doing regardless. So should we be doing it more frequently than that? I don't know. Yeah. And I think that the the recommendation, you know, is mainly based on patients with HIV positivity and right. that it's, you know, you can, you can um, space out to every three years after a period of intense screening. So right. I normally do annually for a period of time. Um, and co-testing. yeah, co-testing. And then if, um, if their, their co-testing is persistently negative over that time, then I talk to them potentially about going for a little bit longer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very good point. Very good point. One other thing that I wanted to bring up was, um, again, this is a conversation I have, you know, with residents and I have this a lot with my adolescent patients as well, which is what defines sexual contact, right? Because right. You know, you'll have a patient saying, well, I've never had sex. Do I need, still need to have pap tests? Or you have, you know, maybe a, um, a patient who um, only, you know, has sex with, you know, female partners. Right. Um, and it's like, you know, do, do I, I don't have penetrative sex. And it's like, well, what is sexual contact? And I, I tell them that for the purposes of, of uh, you know, really HPV, because I mean, HPV is, is pretty contagious. Right. Um, the, you know, sex is really any skin on skin contact that involves, you know, your genitals. Right. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily need to be penetrative sex to right. put you at risk of, you know, getting HPV and then the subsequent sequelae as a result of it. And I've also, I've some of the worst cases of molluscum I have seen, the worst cases. I And, and I had a girl who had only had, she was getting married, she was religious and she's in her 20s and 
she was coming for her pre-honeymoon with her fiance to Florida because Florida is, I guess, the place to go. And one of the worst cases of primary herpes that I picked up, who never, I've never been sexually active. I mean, and there are different sexual activity is not mm-hmm. just referring to penetrative sex. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there's lots. There are lots of variations that that come into play there. And then you have, if you have HSV and you have open lesions, mm-hmm. you run the risk of additional uh, infections because of because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that um, unfortunately, you know, I mean, this that's a whole other podcast that we could do about, yeah. uh, you know, the heteronormative uh, definitions of of sex, um, right. you know, in medicine. And that really, you know, you kind of have to have those conversations and, and, you know, if a patient says I'm not sexually active, you know, you really have to kind of delve into, well, what do you mean? Because we're not just talking about penetration or penetrative sex when you're right. talking about, you know, and, um, sexual and, and if we are talking about pen, it doesn't have to be a male partner. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Are you guys doing, I'm interested in this. What about anal paps? Yeah, we're not doing um, anal paps um, routinely at our institution, you know, mainly because there's just not a whole lot of data about what you do, you know, when you get those pap testers um, back. But we actually have worked closely with our colorectal colleagues, and there is um, definitely some literature about people with high-grade dysplasia and that they are at particularly high risk of, you know, anal cancers and anal dysplasias. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have a um, screening clinic set up where you know, for patients that have high-grade dysplasias that we're treating, um, we're sending on to our colorectal colleagues to be screened. So you are, so you are sending them if you have a high grade? Yep. So, and they don't have to admit to anal sex. They don't have to say that they've been, uh, they have anal sex. It doesn't make a difference. HPV doesn't in make the a general difference. area, yep. like other viruses, like herpes in the general area, it's the boxer short region again. Yep, it's absolutely. It, it's interesting. I don't think that that gets enough play. I don't think there's enough, uh, not uh, enough data. I'm sure that the data is relatively limited, but I don't think in the routine generalist office that that's something that's talked about, that yeah. we that they're, that they're aware of and that there are programs perhaps that people should enroll in for appropriate screening for anal cancer. I think that, and, and again, back to the vaccination <laughs> idea. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, vaccination is key, but also, you know, when you identify these people who are at high risk, making sure that you're, you know, not just treating the cervix, right? You, um, right. again, this is our role as physicians, is that we're looking at our patients as a whole person, right? And understanding that, you know, they're at higher risk of things like anal um, dysplasia and and making sure that they're referred on appropriately. And yeah, and and vulvar. So if I've had somebody with HPV hanging out along, you know, more than a year, two years, and it's still there, and I've done the cervical colposcopy, you know, I'm making sure that that they that we culpo the vulvar area too. Yeah, because you know, bunch of uh, you know, I I haven't found it in the cervix, but sometimes I find a, a high grade. Uh, vulvar dysplasia with a positive cervical cancer screen, which again, if we space out guidelines, if we space out the annual exam, which should be annual, if we don't look at the vulva, we're not going to pick these up. No. And I think also that's, um, you know, colposcopy technique, you know, one of the ways in which I learned to do colposcopy wasn't, you know, I know that a lot of people will like swab the cervix with, you know, Q-tips. I fill up a 10cc syringe and I just, you know, squirt it in. So it basically covers the cervix. It covers the 
entire, you know, vagina, and then it, it comes out onto the vulva as well. So I'm doing yeah. a, you know, true colposcopy of the lower genital tract. And you have to also wait a while for the vulva yes. area, the epithelialized area, because otherwise you won't see anything at all. Yep. Are you yep. doing your own excisions for VIN or do you send them on? Um, I, I, I have been doing my own excisions. Um, yeah. For VIN. Yeah. It's, it's very satisfying. It's very satisfying <laughs> <laughs> to do a good job like that. And yeah. uh, I think it's ASCCP, although it's not standard guidelines says, you know, follow them a little bit closer for a handful of years. And I've seen some recurrences a handful of years, more than just a couple of years out, you know, mm -hmm. it be multifocal and it could come back years out, years down yep. the road. Again, coming back to the idea of vaccinations. And, you know, it's not only gynecologists or physicians that should be discussing vaccinations. It's got to be a whole, it takes a village. It's got to be a whole approach from the community too, because most of the the arguments are from the community, not other physicians. Not we all know the importance of it, but it's and I find that that the distrust of science, which has gotten so bad, especially in my state, really makes it a challenge sometimes to practice. I I do agree. I think that you know people are more and more getting you know a lot of misinformation you know from the internet and. Right the changing in medicine and the, you know, the fact that like we, you know, talked about before the, the time constraints that we have with our patients, you mm -hmm. know, makes that even more challenging, right? I mean, you need right. to build a relationship with somebody before you can counteract, you know, what they're hearing on a daily basis from social right. media. And you can't do that when you might only have, you know, 15, 20 minutes with them. Right. And so, you know, really, you know, starting these conversations, early in your relationship with them. And, and again, that's why, you know, annual preventive visits, whereas, you know, you don't need to be doing necessarily a pap test every year, but you right. can be discussing it and you can be, you know, have it, you know, talking about the reasons why you're making these recommendations um, and reinforcing that message on a regular basis. Right. Very, very important. This has been a great conversation. Emma, I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast. It's been terrific to talk with you about how you approach these cases and how you deal with patients regarding annual exams and cervical cancer prevention. Thank you. I've really appreciated um, having the time to talk with you and I've really enjoyed my time today. Thank you all for listening. Please look at the obgproject.com for more information. You can visit the Cervical Health Resource Center for more information about cervical cancer prevention and other women's health issues. Thanks.